0: J D Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J D Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Coming to you live from New York, I'm Dane Asher. This is first move and here is your need to know. Growth slowdown. US consumers spend less than expected in July as efforts to reopen the economy stall. An epic battle, the owner of the game Fortnite sues Apple and Google, and China's answer to Netflix hits trouble as the US investigates its financial records. It is Friday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move on this Friday. So good to have you with us once again. I'm Zane Asher filling in for Julia Chatterley. Let's begin with a quick check of the U.S. markets right now. U.S. stocks are mostly on track for a slightly lower open after a weaker than expected read on retail sales. The U.S. reporting a short time ago that retail sales actually rose at 1.2 percent last month, which is a marked decline from the spikes we saw in both May and June. The big fear is what will happen to spending this month now that enhanced benefits for unemployed Americans have run out. Millions of jobless workers may have to wait until September to get additional aid as stimulus talks break down in Washington. In the meantime, stocks are also lower in Europe. Travel-related firms are among the hardest hit after the UK's latest quarantine restrictions. Details on that with our Nino dos Santos uh, a little bit later on in the show. Asian stocks uh, were mixed as well. China's shares advanced despite disappointing economic data. Chinese retail sales fell 1.1% last month. Factory output rose but came in weaker than expected as well. All this as we await trade talks over the weekend between Beijing and uh, the US. All right, let's get straight to our drivers now. More on today's Market picture. Christine Romans joins us live now. So uh, retail sales, Christine, coming in at 1.2% weaker than we had been anticipating. Um, You know, to add to that issue is the fact that unemployment insurance has run out for millions of Americans. So then what will happen to retail spending in the future?
2: Yeah, there's big concern that you've seen the best of the resumption of retail uh, retail sales over the past three months. We have three months in a row of rising retail sales, 1.2 uh, percent. That was light of what uh, expectations were. They revised June higher, up 8.4 percent. So that shows you that even as they were having these these reopenings across the country, people were buying more stuff. And then in July, people still were getting the extra $600 a month in their, in their unemployment checks. So they had money in their pockets and they were spending more on things like electricity and appliances, up something like 23% retail sales there, gasoline, clothing, uh, resumption of clothing, uh, clothing purchases, and food services and restaurants in July. They were still spending more money at those places, but there was a decline in auto sales. Auto sales is something that helped to p- sort of pull things down here. And looking forward, a couple of things here. There's concerns about coronavirus cases and new hotspots, also concerns about the, the end of that extra money, and that will definitely be felt in the economy and could hurt consumer confidence. You know, the Senate, it went home. So they're not talking about more stimulus. And when you look at numbers like these, where you see that marked deceleration of of what we were hoping would be a V-shaped recovery, um, it just seems to me like Congress would want to be spending money and quickly to keep this recovery on track. But they are not talking right now.
1: Yeah, those stimulus talks have stalled. Uh, In terms of what's on the calendar this weekend, we've got U.S.-China trade talks. Um, Just walk us through what we can expect to actually come out of these meetings. Will there be a recommitment to, to phase one?
2: I'm not sure what the deliverable is going to be. I mean, this is going to be about compliance and about how they are, you know, meeting their goals and promises uh, here so far. We know that the farm sector in the United States has been simply devastated, um, you know, for several years actually, and now really needs the help of a resumption of big purchases from places uh, like China. But the coronavirus pandemic has slowed trade around the world. So it really puts a layer of of complication and uncertainty onto, onto. of the trade picture overall,
1: Christine Remens live for us there. Thank you so much. Nice to see you.
2: Epic Games has fired the
1: opening shot in what could be a key battle with Apple and Google. The company behind the online game Fortnite is suing the tech giants for removing the game from their app stores. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, why was this game removed from both Apple and Google's app store? It turns out uh, that Fortnite is being accused of not playing by the rules.
3: Yeah, and all of this unfolded really quite quickly uh, on Thursday. What happened was, was that Epic Games, the, the, the maker of Fortnite, they announced to users of Fortnite that they could they could get a 20% discount on in-app purchases if they went directly to Epic and bypassed Google and Apple's proprietary payment systems, which they are required to use according to the App Store and Google Play policies. Uh, Now, Apple and Google both came out and said that that was in violation and they removed the app. And and Epic is is now suing both of them. So clearly they are willing to take on this pretty High stakes fight to protest what? What is the 30% commission that both of these companies take on both app downloads? Obviously, Fortnite is free, but in this case, in-app purchases in Fortnite, you purchase all kinds of things, uh, particularly the, the the virtual currency V Bucks. So they made a lot. They make a lot of revenue on that. So clearly, they are willing to take on this battle to claw back some of that revenue. The company has been very vocal in the past about how it sees that as unfair and anti-competitive, particularly when it comes to Apple, because on Google, don't forget, the Android ecosystem is much more liberal in a way you can download apps through a variety of different app stores, not just Google Play, whereas Apple relies on the App Store.
1: So how material do you think this could end up being for uh, all the parties involved financially?
3: So when it comes to Apple, I mean, look, this is almost a $2 trillion company now. The valuation uh, is just sort of off the charts compared to other companies. I think when you have a $17 billion business like Epic Games, which is sort of the underdog in this, then you see what you're dealing with. Apple has made a lot of money in terms of services, which the in-app purchases and that commission are part of. That's up to $13 billion in in a standard as a standalone company, but that's still only about 20% of their revenue. So for Apple, this probably isn't all that material at the moment, unless it starts to set a serious precedent. As for Epic though, perhaps this is more of a risk for them. They make a lot of money through uh, these in-app downloads, particularly on mobile. They passed a billion dollars in lifetime spending from players, according to to one company earlier this year, partly because of the coronavirus pandemic accelerating gaming. So they perhaps have a lot more to lose. And that was particularly, of course, in the App Store rather than Google Play, which they only uh, launched
1: on in April this year. Right, Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you so much. China's answer to Netflix is proving some real-life drama. iQiyi's U.S. shares are set to plunge for a second day as an investigation by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission continues. CNN's Selena Wong uh, is in Hong Kong for us. So, Selena, uh, just walk us through what uh, this probe is about. What is the SEC looking for? What are they accusing iQiyi of doing in terms of their accounting practices?
4: Zane, we can tell that investors are clearly rattled by this investigation by the SEC into iQiyi. It was prompted by a report from Wolfpack Research back in April claiming that iQiyi has been committing fraud well before its IPO in the United States in 2018. For some context here, iQiyi is often referred to as the Netflix of China. It's owned by Baidu. It's a video streaming giant. It's a household name in China. It's known for its popular TV shows, movies and dramas. And this wolfpack research report alleges that it's been vastly inflating its revenue by up to 44 percent and user numbers by up to 60 percent they allege that the company has been hiding this fraud from investors and from auditors by inflating its expenses in order to burn off that fake cash now at the time ICE pushed back against the report saying that it included many unsubstantiated numbers and errors. But now it says that it is cooperating with the SEC and that it does not know the outcome or the timing of what they're going to investigate.
1: Okay, so they are cooperating. They've been accused of uh, inflating their expenses, among other things. Um, So how does this probe fit into the broader dynamic and the broader tensions between the U.S. and China right now, because it was only just a couple of weeks ago we saw the announcement about uh, WeChat and TikTok being banned in the U.S. by President Trump and therefore potentially having to look for another buyer. Just walk us through what this means in the broader context.
4: And if we just look at this from the financial decoupling standpoint, I mean, the timing could not be worse. This comes shortly after revelations of a massive, massive accounting scandal at Luckin Coffee, which is another Chinese upstart. It is a coffee chain. And ultimately, they were delisted from the Nasdaq and its chairman and its CEO were fired. And this also refreshes the story, Zane, that Chinese equities are dangerous. Back in 2011 and 2012, more than 100 Chinese companies were delisted or suspended from trading because of allegations of fraud or of accounting scandals. And allegations like this only further these growing calls in Washington to limit financial flows from the United States to China. Back in May, the Senate unanimously passed a bill that would make it impossible for Chinese companies to list on Wall Street if they did not open up their books. In addition to that, the Nasdaq has also proposed legislation and rules that would make it more difficult for Chinese companies to list. So really, could it be more terrible timing for this type of allegation?
1: Yeah, you said it. Uh, Selena Wang, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai, the pro-democracy newspaper owner, has been speaking to CNN after being released on bail. Police arrested him earlier this week under the controversial new security law. Lai spoke to our Will Ripley.
5: It's very stupid to think that Hong Kong can be independent when they can send troops to, you know, to cram you down in three hours. You know, this is not possible.
6: So you're going on the record saying, you're not pushing for independence, but you want people to have the right.
5: To, to, to keep the rule of law and the freedom we have. And the right to say that they want independence. Yeah, exactly, the free, you know, the freedom of speech. I don't associate with the independent camp, at, not at all, I've never had.
6: Did you meet with U.S. officials at the consulate and other places, as China alleges, and, and you know, try to encourage U.S. officials in Washington, because you have a lot of connections in the States, to sanction Hong Kong government leaders and whatnot?
5: Well, uh, I did not do it in person, but in the interview, I did that, you know, I said, you know, the only help that we can get from is the U.S., you know, and when, 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 when they asked that whether the U.S. should revolt the special status of Hong Kong, I said, that is senseless, you know, what you should do is to censor China. Do you feel that some
6: aspects of the, of the pro-democracy movement have pushed China
5: too far and lost? Well, you can't say that we moved China too far. We never burned a car. We never looted the, the shops. Some like, people did. Like that those virus. guys. And well, it's a fire, yeah. But but property, you know, destroy Yeah, but stations. that is a very, very small scale compared with what they're rioted now in the U.S. It's a very small
6: scale. There hasn't been a significant protest since this law was passed. Even when there were calls for people
5: to come out, people didn't in large numbers. No, because with this law, people won't dare to come out. Only those very hardcore supporter of you know of the movement came out. So has China already won in that regard? I, I think China already won with the intimidation. The, the the effect is is very strong already. You know, some people have left or are leaving. Many have sidestepped the movement. And what have left are those hardcore like myself. I know your own children
6: were among the group who right. were arrested. So. Right. You're a parent, and you obviously supported the involvement of your own children. But for somebody who might not have the money or whose family might not have the money to defend themselves legally, do you think it's a good idea to go out there and still call for democracy and independence if if they now face the risk under this law?
5: I think it's a good idea any time, any situation that you are in to fight for your freedom. Because, Because without freedom, you have nothing left.
1: right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. The Palestinian Authority is withdrawing its ambassador to the United Arab Emirates, slamming the UAE's peace deal with Israel as a betrayal. The agreement requires Israel to suspend annexation in the West Bank, but Palestinian leaders have long urged Arab nations not to normalize relations with Israel until it ends the occupation and agrees to an independent Palestinian state. Let's get more now. Uh, from our journalist Elliot Gotkeen, who's live in Tel Aviv for us. So Elliot, this, is, this peace deal is basically the, only, the third only peace deal ever between Israel and an Arab nation. Just walk us through how both Israel and the UAE benefit here.
7: There's benefits uh, for both sides. Uh, from the UAE's perspective, it gets access to uh, Israeli uh, security cooperation, Israeli technology. Israel's got a very strong technology ecosystem here, uh, and also has the opportunity for uh, you know cultural tourist exchanges and the like. And they're talking about direct flights uh, running from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi. Uh, it also has the opportunity of being more involved in any ongoing negotiations to try to forge some kind of uh, peace with uh, the Palestinians. From the Israelis' perspective, uh, it, as you say, this is only the third Arab country that Israel will be signing, will be normalising relations with, following Egypt and Jordan. Uh, it means for Israel that uh, they can uh, collaborate, that they will have more, uh, uh, more opportunities to, uh, to travel and be kind of freer to, to uh, have uh, relations uh, trade-wise and business-wise with uh, the UAE as well. And I think uh, also from Israel's perspective, and certainly the Prime Minister Netanyahu's perspective, it kind of vindicate, vindicates his uh, policy. Uh, he said last night that this was peace for peace. There are effectively no concessions from the Israeli side, whereas in the past there always have been. Now, you may say, well, look, Israel's agreed to suspend its plans to annex parts of the West Bank. But Netanyahu, just in the minutes and hours after that announcement, said that, look, it's still on the table. It's just a postponement at the request of the United States. I suppose the uh, settler group's concern... Is that if President Trump doesn't get re-elected, that a Biden presidency will not allow such an annexation uh, to go ahead. So uh, from that perspective, the the settlers, uh, many of them, not particularly happy with this agreement either. But uh, most people in Israel certainly uh, think it's a a great deal. Uh, But as you say, the Palestinians clearly feel that they've been uh, somewhat thrown under the bus here.
1: Yeah, a lot of Palestinians saying that they weren't warned beforehand that the deal was coming. But uh, Elliot Gott, you have to leave it there? Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The United States has refused a Russian offer of help with a coronavirus vaccine. Officials in Moscow tell CNN. The White House on Thursday said it is concerned that the vaccine that Russia has approved for use has not completed human trials. However, Russia says U.S. pharmaceutical companies have shown interest. More than 20 potential vaccines are in various phases of testing around the world. Still to come, the U.S. and China review their phase one trade deal this weekend amid an escalating tech standoff. We'll take a look at what to expect. And the U.K. imposes new quarantine restrictions on countries including France to the dismay of travelers and airlines alike. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks remain on track for a mostly lower open. Tech stocks are losing altitude pre-market but are still uh, technically in positive territory. The U.S. reported before the bell that retail sales rose by a weaker than expected 1.2% last month. Retail sales fell by more than 1% in China last month as well. All of this raising fears that global growth is slowing after months of improvement. The broader market has run into resistance the past few sessions with The S&P 500 unable to close at record highs, encouraging jobless claims data failed to lift the Dow and the S&P yesterday. Fears that unemployed workers won't get new help from Congress until next month continues to weigh on sentiment as well. Top Chinese and U.S. officials are expected to meet by video conference this weekend to review the progress of the phase one trade deal. At the White House on Thursday, President Trump said the deal has been good for American farmers.
5: The phase one deal, uh, it's a very interesting situation because you've been hearing the largest order of corn in history, the largest order of soybeans, the largest order of beef. They've done more than they've ever done. They have uh,
8: gone into orders that are extremely large, extremely large, and our
5: farmers are very happy
1: Joining us now is China Beige Book CEO Leyland Miller. Leyland, thank you so much for being with us. So part of the sort of centerpiece um, in terms of the phase one trade deal was China's commitment to buying $200 billion worth of U.S. goods. They haven't done that. So will the U.S. still be as committed to phase one as it was previously?
8: Well, I think most people in the government right now are scratching their heads because you know you have two components of, of the phase one trade deal you have the economic targets which clearly haven't been met they're failing by all metrics and then you have the political decision about what to do with it uh if the targets aren't being met but there isn't a political will to crack down on the chinese or or to push back on the chinese for not having hit them then then nothing really happens and this thing continues to sputter along so i think we're at that stage right now where everybody's looking at phase one as this very difficult deal to defend but at the same time there's not a strategy for how to go forward into into a more combative mode, and certainly the Biden campaign hasn't attacked uh, Trump enough on this, and so you you really haven't gotten into the fall dynamics where where the deal where the deal is is under siege. But but I think we're heading there.
1: Okay, so you think we're heading there? The deal could be under siege. So um, just from China's perspective, though, a commitment to two hundred billion dollars worth of U.S. goods is quite a lot given what's happened to their economy. Yes, their economy. Is recovering, but it's still fragile at this point. So, so what have they been through this year?
8: Well, it's, it's not just difficult; it's it's, it's impossible to meet. Uh, you know, the, the targets were ambitious, virtually across the board from the very beginning. But once COVID hit, and it not just affected the Chinese economy, but the but the global economy, the, there was there was absolutely no chance that China could hit these targets. So again, the question then moved from the economic sphere, okay, the Chinese are going to fail by the original deal commitments, to the political side, how bad do we want them doing something? And I think that's what the White House is struggling on right now. They don't want the Chinese to cut off all corn purchases and soybean purchases and others. You know, as the president said, they've just talked about some very big deals that are are on the table. Uh, But the deal is not working. And the question is, if you're running on China and you're running on trade, and these are two of your big priorities for your administration in your first four years, how long can you continue to defend a deal that's just failing across the board?
1: Is it surprising that both sides are still willing to negotiate um, when it comes to trade, just given the broader rift we're seeing right now between the U.S. and China, be it you know, sanctions against individuals on both sides, uh, closed embassies? Um, what's happening right now with WeWork and TikTok and their oper- operations in the U.S. being threatened? Does it surprise you that, that we're here uh, in terms of what's happening this weekend?
8: No, it really doesn't. I mean, if, if from the Chinese perspective, if you've been, if you've given a deal, and you understand that if you buy more and more and more purchases, then you, the, the White House is going to leave you alone, and the White House is going to keep, you know, the Republicans in Congress from attacking you more aggressively, then you buy more. I mean, you try your your goal is to try to get through November to see what whether you have to deal with a Trump two or a, or a Biden one administration. Uh, so I think it makes absolute sense for the Chinese to play the game for as long as they can. Uh, you know, the, the administration has a different set of complexities. And that is they have to be tough on China. Per, you know, Trump is going to be running as the guy who was tough on China like nobody else. But it's very difficult to talk about how much you're, you know, you're beating down the Chinese in, in every way. And But the, they have a trade deal. They're not adhering to the trade deal and you're not doing anything about it. So there's a, there, there's a, a break here that's going to have to be rectified when, when Trump goes on the record and can you know, run up to the campaign and campaign debates and et cetera.
1: So beyond the fact that China isn't meeting uh, the main target and that is the main point of the deal, what is likely to be some other points of contention over the weekend?
8: Well, I think that the Chinese want to say that as long as, you know, you're, you're being mean to us on, on whether it's on TikTok or WeChat or, or, or other aspects of the relationship, it's going to make it very difficult uh, for us to, 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 to buy all those goods. So I think that they simply want to put as much pressure on the, the White House uh, to tamp down the rhetoric. I think that they understand that this fall is going to be extremely nasty once we get into it in terms of blaming the Chinese for everything and attacking the Chinese uh, model. And the Chinese system and, and, and the Chinese Communist Party. So I think what they would like to do is just hope for the best circumstances and say that Phase One trade deal is in part reliant on you being nicer to us. And then it's going to be up for the administration to figure out whether they're going to call the Chinese bluff or not. And and this is where it starts getting interesting in a few weeks.
1: And it, and in the meantime, what's at stake here uh, for the U.S. economy? President Trump in the sound play, in the sound we just played talked about just how beneficial uh, this deal has been to U.S. farmers.
8: Yeah, look, from a macro perspective, this isn't moving the needle. I think for President Trump's campaign, it's nice to be able to tell farmers, you know, you, you, you stood with us, for for years and now we're delivering the goods. You know, we said trust us and now we're delivering. So I think there's a very potent political message here. But from a macro perspective, this isn't moving the the, the US economy one way or the other, particularly when we're in the in, in the, the midst of, of the, the COVID fallout, which is hitting us you know from every direction. So it's a very potent political message, but from a macro perspective, the phase one deal isn't doing anything for us right now, which is why I think it's in a lot more danger than most people understand.
1: Leyland Miller, life for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Diplomacy in the Middle East, a historic deal sets up normalization between Israel and the UAE. Coming up on first move, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel. That is after the break. There we have it, a social distanced ringing of uh, the bell on this Friday morning on Wall Street. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this last day of trading for this week. We have got a lower start to the Dow. The Dow is down 120 points. Uh, Also a lower start to the S&P 500 as well. Tech stocks are on the rise, though, for the third straight session. Weaker than expected reads on both Chinese and U.S. retail sales are hurting, hurting sentiment that is weighing apparently on the Dow. Uh, We began the week with cyclical stocks in the driver's seat on the hopes for a stronger global economic growth, but that rotation appears to be running out of steam amid fresh economic concerns and rising COVID-19 cases in Europe. The EU is among those welcoming the historic peace deal between Israel and the UAE, saying that it will help promote regional stability. US President Donald Trump helped broker the agreement, which requires Israel to suspend annexation in the West Bank in exchange for normalized relations with the UAE. Some countries oppose the deal. Turkey is considering suspending diplomatic ties with the UAE. Let's get some perspective now from the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro. He's also a distinguished visiting fellow at Tel Aviv's University Institute of National Security Studies. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for being with us. So um, just walk us through how this deal, how this peace agreement between Israel and the UAE changes the broader power lines and the power dynamic in the Middle East, especially given that both countries have a common enemy in Iran.
9: Sure. Thanks for having me. It has been a long-term strategic objective, bipartisan administrations in the United States have supported it, uh, for Israel to strengthen and even normalize its relations with other Arab states. And the opportunity here was already there. These are two countries that have had very warm, unofficial ties for some number of years, precisely because they share a common adversary in Iran. They share concern about other extreme jihadist organizations in the region. And so they already cemented a quiet, Security and intelligence cooperation, but now it can be brought out in the open. It can be it, it can accelerate cooperation in many other fields, from trade to tourism to science to technology to health uh, to many other uh, fields. And that cements a uh, camp of moderate nations aligned with the United States, uh, who can, uh, in an open way, cooperate together against common threats that they and we face. So it's very much a positive from that perspective.
1: Um. Do you believe that there will be other sort of Sunni Arab nations that will follow suit? Um, If so, which ones do you think?
9: Well, the UAE has been uh, in a leadership role in terms of uh, bringing already, even before it was official, into the open some aspects of its relationship with Israel. But they're kind of the trailblazer. I think it's quite possible, uh, maybe even likely, that some other Gulf states, perhaps Bahrain, perhaps Oman, uh, perhaps others uh, will consider similar steps in the in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, again, this has been a, a long-term uh, U.S. objective, uh, and uh, that will uh, further cement Israel's uh, recognition in the region as a legitimate actor, a partner in security, in in technology, and in, uh, increasingly in economic and cultural affairs as well. So this is very much a very much to the positive. One of the other positive things that came of it, of course, was that uh, it gave Israel a reason to put aside a very bad idea that had been floated, which was uh, unilateral annexation of the West Bank, which would have probably killed off any remaining chance for a two-state solution uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. And so in this way, the UAE was able to leverage uh, the opportunity it had, uh, it was proposing to Israel for this normalization, and perhaps being the first of several, uh, in exchange for uh, backing away from a step that helps keep, keep the two-state solution alive for a, a further attempt at negotiations.
1: So if the annexation of the West Bank is off the table, at least temporarily or delayed, depending on what language that Netanyahu uh, used, what has been the reaction to that among people in Israel, particularly among settlers?
9: First, I think most Israelis are very uh, pleased and excited. Uh, They uh, have not seen uh, an Arab state uh, formally normalize relations with Israel since the peace treaty with Jordan in 1994. And the UAE is only the third nation after Egypt and Jordan to do so. Uh, It's the opening of uh, an avenue to commerce and tourism uh, in the Gulf. Uh, I think many Israelis will look forward to traveling to Abu Dhabi and Dubai. So I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. But there was criticism. There was criticism from within uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party and from among uh, settler leaders who felt that he had promised them that he was committed to annexation. And of course he had. He had run three consecutive election campaigns around the issue that he was preparing to uh, unilaterally annex portions of the West Bank. He secured the uh, at least temporary or partial backing of the Trump administration to do so, uh, and then made this decision uh, to actually trade in uh, annexation in exchange for normalization. I think that was a very good decision, but uh, he will definitely take some criticism from parts of his political base for it.
1: So aside from criticism against Netanyahu within Israel, uh, we've seen expected criticism from obviously Iran. Uh, Turkey is also coming out and criticizing, but also um, among the Palestinian people as well, many of them saying that, you know, they weren't consulted, they weren't told about this deal. And it involved them, it involved the West Bank. And there you, ha- and they, you have uh, the UAE essentially speaking on their behalf. So how does this change the, the dynamic between the UAE and the Palestinian people?
9: Certainly, some Palestinians had hoped that normalization would be, would be withheld and only uh, offered as a reward for uh, achieving a two-state solution and the end to the conflict. Uh, and uh, that has often been how uh, discussions have been structured in the past. But I think what this decision by the UAE demonstrates is that they and other Arab states are uh, not necessarily going to wait. They see opportunities uh, because of their own common security interests, the threats of Iran and other extremist elements uh, to cooperate with Israel. They don't want to hold back. They see other economic and scientific collaborations that they don't want to hold back. Uh, They, of course, have had their criticisms of uh, Israeli uh, policies and uh, and would certainly have opposed annexation. Uh, But they also have some criticisms of the Palestinian approach to negotiations, too often staying away from negotiations, sometimes walking away from negotiations rather than finding a way to keep them going. And so I think it is a signal to the Palestinians that there is still an opportunity. As I said, two states has been kept alive by annexation being removed from the table, but that they'll need to get off the sidelines. Uh, I think it's also important that the United States be prepared to transition back into a leadership role in in support of a realistic two-state solution. That's not the Trump plan that was introduced in January, which really doesn't describe a a viable Palestinian state. It's something uh, along the lines of negotiations that been conducted previously. Certainly Vice President Biden is describing uh, a return to U.S. leadership in support of two states where Palestinians could achieve their legitimate rights for independence and and self-determination and a state of their own, while Israel could achieve its goals of security and long-term recognition of its Jewish and democratic status. So there is an opportunity here, but the United States is going to have to take a leadership role to take advantage of it.
1: Dan Shapiro, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. The U.K. has imposed new quarantine measures on France, the Netherlands and Malta. The trade body representing U.K. airlines called it, quote, another devastating blow to the travel industry. Uh, Nina De Santos joins us live now. So, Nina, yet again, you have travelers being caught by surprise by another announcement in terms of quarantine rules. Just, just walk us through how airlines and travel companies and travel agents can effectively plan appropriately, given so much uncertainty.
10: Used to here. This isn't the first time that the UK has uh, imposed quarantine restrictions on countries in very, very uh, short term periods. The last time that they imposed a quarantine restriction on Spain a few weeks ago, that actually caught the Transport Minister, Grant Schapps, himself uh, unawares. And he had to hot foot it back to the UK and leave his family back in Spain to finish off their vacation and thereafter uh, quarantine as well. And this is the type of predicament that about 160,000 Britons who are currently in France may be having to grapple with as we speak. France is the biggest, most important destination on the list of those four or five countries that have been added to these new quarantine restrictions uh, overnight by the UK. It is the second most visited destination by british tourists after only spain so this really presents an important issue it also presents an important transport and logistical issue as well because remember that a lot of british families will be in their cars and trying to make their way towards the border with france which is of course the port of calais under the british channel what we have is uh, trains going there Two, connects to the UK. Many of those trains are already completely sold out, and the operators of those trains are saying, whatever you do, don't come to the north of France if you don't already have a ticket secured. It's going to be very difficult to find accommodation there. Um, There are some flights that are still operating. The tickets are getting more and more expensive. But remember that the cut-off point here is 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. If you're not back in U.K. soil from any of these destinations by then, the 14-week quarantine quarantine rule does apply. Now, what is the French government saying about this? Well, you can imagine there's furious diplomacy going on behind the scenes. We're here outside the French consulate. Behind here is the biggest French school uh, in the United Kingdom. Many French uh, citizens will be coming back here to send their children to school if they're expats living here in London and they themselves may be caught awares by this. The French government has said that they regret this decision by the UK. They acknowledge that, of course, it is down to a spike in infection rates, but they also haven't ruled out any reciprocal measures. And that is the real fear here uh, for some of these travel companies when it comes to these types of uh, public health and travel policies to get joined up thinking to prevent this becoming a tit-for-tat quarantine rule during the end of this peak summer season, Zane.
1: And what does this effectively do to the summer travel season in Europe?
10: Well, it's been a really difficult summer travel season, hasn't it? In the United Kingdom, obviously, the government has encouraged uh, the staycation. Uh, The weather's been a bit more forgiving than it has in previous years. But then again, there are some destinations in the UK that don't necessarily want to see large influxes of tourists from other parts of the country where there may be coronavirus outbreaks taking place. The real difficulty for uh, all public health bodies, all governments around the world, and particularly in Europe, which is such an interconnected part of the world, is trying to plan to contain local outbreaks, national outbreaks, And, of course, trying to salvage what's left of the summer tourist season, a massive revenue driver. The other thing you have to think about, though, Zane, is also schools, schools like this French school behind me. Schools across the rest of the country will be opening in a few weeks' time. And if people are getting stuck behind 14-day quarantine rules, those children won't make it back to school in time after such a disruptive year last year, Zane.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's an important point to mention. You know, Santos, life us there. Thank you so much. Still ahead, if the pandemic is giving you sleepless nights, stick around. The CEO of mattress company, Casper, joins me after this. The quality of your night's sleep can make or break your day. And I say that as someone who gets up at 3 a.m., sometimes 4 a.m. to anchor this program. It's something the people at Mattress Maker Casper have built their brand on, but they know they can't afford to sleep in just yet. There have been a few bumps in the night for its share price after the company posted a second quarter loss this week. Casper CEO Philip Krim is here in New York. Philip, thank you so much for being with us. So. Um, Just give us a sense of what this year has been like for you, because obviously you had your IPO back in February. You know, it was met with a pretty chilly reception. Then the markets tanked after that. Um, But then there's also, you know, given coronavirus disruption to supply chains, issues with retail outlets as well. Just just walk us through what this year has has been like for Casper.
11: Sure, happy to, and and thank you for having me today. Uh, You know, certainly 2020 has been a a challenging year from a, a number of different perspectives. Um, But ultimately, I think the company has performed well. I think our team has really uh, stepped up when it came to performance, even when we moved to a completely remote work-from-home environment, which we've been in since uh, COVID really hit uh, back in March. Uh, And I think overall, we're delivering more products to more customers than ever before. And I think there's a real demand out there for people who want to upgrade their quality of sleep, who want to upgrade their home. And a lot more people are spending more time at home, more time in bed, more time in their bedroom. And we're seeing really strong demand for the industry because people realize that getting a great night of sleep is key to wellness, key to being healthy, and uh, people really value that. And that's why we're seeing great demand for our mattresses uh, and great demand for our other products, like our pillows, our weighted blankets, et cetera. So we've overcome a a tough year for sure. And I think we're actually in a a good position given what's going on with our overall industry.
1: So even if you do have great demand, you know, people change their mattresses what once every five years, six years, seven years. So how do you sustain that demand? And how do you, I mean, I know that you don't just sell mattresses, but walk us through what you, how you've diversified beyond just mattresses then.
11: Sure. So mattresses are actually a huge, huge industry. In the US alone, 17 to $18 billion is spent every year on mattresses. So something like 20 million mattresses will be bought this year and even more next year. Globally, I think it's something like a 40 billion plus dollar industry, and that's every year on mattresses. So even though the replacement cycles might be seven to eight years, the average home is actually in market every two to three years. And this is a highly considered purchase. It's a purchase that impacts your health, how you feel. And so people are, are doing their diligence, finding out who's the best. Oftentimes, that leads you to Casper. And we think that we've really elevated the experience to shop for these products and we're, we're trying to build Casper to be the world's first sleep brand. So it certainly is more than just mattresses, although the mattress is uh, literally and figuratively the foundation of a great night of sleep. But like I mentioned, we have other great products as well that will help you get a better night of sleep, like sheets and pillows and bedding. Uh, and, and all of this are huge industries globally uh, and something that consumers need every year. And so it's, it's not about the replacement cycle. It's actually about satisfying the demand that's out there. And the industry is seeing really strong demand uh, as people focus on investing in quality sleep.
1: Um, at the same time, though, there are about over 170 different digital sleep companies out there, even though you are the first sort of major mattress in a box company. How do you um, make sure that Casper continues to dominate in terms of market share and beats our competition? How do you keep up that momentum going forward?
11: Yeah, it's a great question, and it starts with product. Our products really are designed to be the best night of sleep possible. Uh, We have a Casper Labs team that is focused on designing products with true efficacy of sleep, and that's uh, very different than our competition. Uh, So we are doing the R&D. We are understanding what aspects are needed for the best night of sleep possible. Our mattresses circulate air better than any mattress we test against, so it provides a cooler night of sleep. Our mattresses have advanced ergonomics. To help you wake up feeling more refreshed and rejuvenated and it's that uh focus on great products that i think really leads us uh, within the mattress industry and then I, I combine that with great experiences so we now have 60 retail stores in the us where you can shop for our products it's a, it's a delightful experience it's fun we have really knowledgeable sleep experts within our retail stores to help you pick the right products for you And we have a great brand. People love the Casper brand. People trust us to get you the best night of sleep possible. And that's why word of mouth has been such a powerful driver of our business and why we continue to grow and take market share within this industry.
1: Philip Krim, CEO of Casper, thank you so much for joining us.
11: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Still to come here, social distancing deep underground, an exclusive look at how COVID-19 is affecting an already dangerous profession. As you know, industries of all kinds are reeling from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, Eleni Jokos has an exclusive first-hand look at the challenges facing mining. In South Africa, a surge in infections is forcing the government to balance protecting lives with protecting livelihoods. Take a listen.
12: Descending more than 200 meters into a coal mine has always carried a certain level of risk and at Sassel's Imphumelelo mine, they've always taken serious precautions. On my belt, an emergency breathing pack and a sensor that will stop the heavy machinery if I get too close. Still, working through South Africa's COVID-19 peak brings a new level of fear to even the most hardened of miners.
6: For God, I pray for Buselezo, the greatest survivor who tested positive in this mine.
12: Pela Elom Tombeni was this mine's first employee to come down with the virus. She's grateful to be back underground.
1: My kids go to school because of this job.
12: And the sector is just as essential for South Africa's economy. Around 80% of its power still comes from coal. How many of those jobs are essential and critical skills that aren't easily replaced? 90%.
8: Um, above 90%. But I must say everybody that we have on the mine
7: is actually critical. Everybody that's working underground is critical.
12: But even with the constant mask wearing, the constant sanitising between shifts, the clinic on site, cases here continue to rise. More than 100 positive cases at this mine alone.
10: We've got about 16%
8: loss in production that we have experienced on this particular mine.
12: Uh, I mean, look, we're still heading towards the peak. Yeah, yeah. Does this worry you, does it scare you that yeah. the production losses are going to be inevitable?
5: Yeah. Um, if I said I was not worried, I would be lying to you. I'm definitely worried.
12: COVID-19 will be an eye-opener,
5: especially in the, min- in the mining sector, right across the board, You could see the numbers are rising. They've been inhaling this dust for years. Now, when this virus comes in, it finds an, an immune system that is already weakened and then it
12: attacks. It's community transmission outside Sassel's gates that is driving the spread here. And the union says not enough is being done to address it.
7: Once you leave the mine, I think got, they forgot about you. They say you must look after yourself.
12: Percy Similane is returning home after nine hours underground.
7: They say they, the COVID-19 attacks the lungs. I feel vulnerable on that.
12: Even at the sassel owned housing complex where he lives with his wife and two sons, he says no one from his company has come to talk about COVID-19 since the pandemic began.
7: I never see someone come here. It's tough, it's tough,
12: But he'll keep going underground like so many in the sector. He is an essential employee and the job means everything. Eleni Jokos, CNN, Secunda, South Africa.
1: All right, before we leave you, one last look at the U.S. market. Stocks here are lower across the board in early trading. Disappointing retail sales data from China and the U.S. is putting pressure on stocks. The Dow is down about 100 points. Despite today's losses, U.S. stocks are still on track for modest gains this week. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Zane Ash. It was so good to be with you. Have a great weekend.
0: When you work, you work next level